It's such a wonderful privilege to be together this morning. Thank you to Charles and the team. It's great to worship Jesus. It is a wonderful name, the name of Jesus. Uh, if you're new with us at Connect, just want to say a very big welcome. Uh, my name is Roland. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect, and it would be great to get to meet you afterwards. If you are new, you wouldn't know, or if you're joining us for the first time online, I just want to welcome you guys as well. We have been in a series for a good few weeks now called Seeing Jesus, and we've been journeying through the book of John. And so we're going to continue to do that this morning. We're in John chapter 11, and it's quite a famous chapter in the book of John because it's a chapter that records an astronomically amazing miracle that Jesus performs, and it's also famous for having the shortest verse in the entire Bible, just two words, Jesus wept. So we're going to be in that this morning, but, but just to remind you, the reason why John records what he does in his gospel is because he has the express intent of revealing to us who Jesus is through miracles that Jesus has performed, which he calls signs. And he calls them signs because they point to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God. He is the Messiah, and he is the only one through whom we can have eternal life. And so right at the end of the book of John, he wraps up, and he says, but these are written, these, these signs that he's recorded. Jesus did many more, it says in the verse that precedes that. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Is the PowerPoint not working, gents? Okay. But you've seen that every week, so hopefully you can recite that, all right? Um, but that's the reason why John writes. And, and so... The title this morning of the message is For the Glory of God, and we're going to see Jesus doing stuff, allowing stuff to happen for the glory of his name, and I love that Aukia shared this morning because it ties so perfectly into the message, what you had to share just marries here so nicely. And so we're going to continue, but as I was going through this chapter and preparing, this chapter is one of those amazing ones where it's just full of gems, so you just picking out gems after gem after gem, and as you do that, it starts to reveal more and more and more, and it's like you can't find the depths of God's Word, but this chapter, this chapter seems to be particularly rich. And so there's a starting point, we're going to have an end goal, and you're going to see John's intent uh, is realized, that, that people do come to know Jesus, they put their faith in Him, and they have life in Him, and He records that happening for people, and His intent is also that it happens for us as we read it. But, but we're going to do a bit of a road trip from beginning to end, and if you like me and you love road trips, you know the best part about a road trip is not necessarily getting to the end destination, it's about stopping off at all those little farm stalls that have such lacquer jam and roosterbrits along the way. So that's sort of what we're going to do. So we're going to start off right in the beginning, John chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through to 5, and it's the first point. And the point is this, Jesus hears, Jesus hears, says this, now a man named Lazarus was sick. This is why it's good to bring your Bibles here, guys. All right. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, his brother Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, 
it is for the glory of God that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And we're just going to stop here for a bit. I love what the sisters lead with. They didn't have a text message back in the day. They didn't text message system, no fax or anything like that. If you wanted to send a message from one place to the next and you wanted to do it quickly, you sent a messenger, a runner, someone on a horseback who would really run really quickly. And hopefully they would deliver the exact message you gave to them to deliver. So a good memory was important, and the message not being too long was also important. They send words to Jesus about Lazarus, and they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. I love it. In other words, respond, please, because this is important. And it's important because it's happening in the life of someone you love and care for. Now, I want to unpack the obvious here quickly and then apply it and bring meaning to it for us in our lives. The obvious is this. Jesus loves Lazarus very much, and Lazarus is deathly ill. Jesus loves Lazarus, but Lazarus is very sick. What does this mean for us? It means that Jesus loves you too, and you will experience unwanted circumstances in your life. Jesus loves you very much, and you'll experience unwanted, painful circumstances in your life. I've been in ministry for about 17 years. I was just working out with Mans as I was preparing this message, about 17 years. And in those 17 years, I've had many conversations with believers who are going through difficult times. And a lot of the conversation I've had and have had to counsel people in and work through with them in their lives went like this. If, if God loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen. How can God have allowed this to happen to me if he's a God of love and really cares about where I am? Just look at what's going on in my life. Surely this is evidence of the fact that something is wrong with my relationship with God. Have I done something wrong? Is there something I'm being punished for? As we look at the life of Lazarus and what the, what, what the scriptures lead with, what, what John unpacks for us, we have to remember that the love of Jesus doesn't separate us from ills that are common to humanity. Being a child of God, being a son or a daughter of the king does not mean that life is not going to be difficult, nor does it mean that when things get difficult that God does not love you. This world is sinful and broken which is why our hope is not in this world, but in the one to come. But we can so easily lose focus of that. And just in the five verses we read in chapter 11, we get perspective again. God is in control. There are things that he allows. And I want to submit this to you with humility, because I'm at the front of the line and I'm having to work through this stuff, that there are things that happen in your life that aren't going to be welcome and aren't going to be nice, but they are there for the greater glory of God. Whether we see them now or whether we see them later and to Alke's testimony is a floater in her eye that doesn't make sense and is unwelcome and unwanted but it has led to the greater glory of God we can sit back and we can lament and we can apply some bad theology which I'll explain to us just now and think that God doesn't love us but actually at the end of the day church it is all for the glory of God we saw this thing happen in John chapter 9 shells preached about the blind man out here we're speaking about the blind man and how God spoke to her through that message. 
But in John chapter 9, the disciples and those following Jesus see this blind man, and they have a theology about that. The theology back then suggested right, that because this man was blind, somebody sinned. Somebody messed up. It was either him or his parents. And so they apply the theology, which is wrong, and they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And it sounds a little bit like modern-day karma, where you do good stuff, you get good stuff, you do bad stuff, you get bad stuff. And Jesus shatters the understanding of this. He says, nobody's sinned. Your theology's bad. This man was born this way so that the Son of God might be glorified and Jesus heals him. And people are like, oh. I want to say that in your life some stuff might be happening that you can't understand, can't reconcile with the love of God and the goodness of God. But it is not always that you're being punished that God doesn't love you. In fact, God never stops loving you. Sometimes it happens for the greater glory of God. Jesus responds with saying, in a sense, paraphrase, karma doesn't exist. And I know that there are people in this room who have experienced that dark night of the soul, that deep pain, that suffering, that hurts at least once in their life, if not more. And maybe that's where you're at right now in your life. How can this be happening to me? Does God love me? I can't make sense of this. I don't understand what's happening. And it's because we can't see the end goal, isn't it? The end game that becomes super frustrating and really dark. We read about the life of Lazarus and we see the blind man and we know that it turns out well for Lazarus. We see the end story. We see the blind man can see again. We read about Job and all the stuff he went through and we see the end result. God restores to him sevenfold what was taken away. But for our lives, we're living in it. And we don't see the end goal, but I want to promise you this. As sons and daughters of the king, what God brings and allows into your life is not because he doesn't love you. It's because it's his glory that's paramount. And he's using you as an instrument for his glory, which is a beautiful thing. When God allows unwanted circumstances we see from the life of Lazarus into our lives, there is limitless potential. And we'll say this like, so that we get it. Again, I'm at the front of the line to understand this. There is limitless potential in our lives that we don't realize exists to impact the lives of others around us for the glory of God. When God allows difficult stuff into our lives, there is limitless potential for God to use us as a window through which other people are able to see who our God is. You, you, you church, you guys prayed for my family and I. Those of you who know us well, we've just had a little uh, baby girl, our second one born in, um, in February this year. But it was a really rough journey and we almost lost my wife and this little girl in November, December last year where Mandy developed a pulmonary embolism and it was really bad. And we rushed from one clinic to hospital to the next. Eventually she ended up in Kurtisgear ICU maternity. And it was in that moment that I realized I have absolutely no control over anything in life. Absolutely nothing. I control nothing. I can plan my life and I can live my life the way I want to, but I have absolutely no control over life or death. Jesus is the one who holds the keys to life and death. And it was in that moment that I had the choice to have my heart harden up and clam up at the thought of what God was allowing me to go through. And even though we didn't, praise God, lose the little girl or my wife, it was still some of the most emotionally taxing and draining times of my life. And people were praying, and I realized God is the God who gives and he takes away. And what am I going to do when he takes away? Am I going to clam up and blame him? 
I'm not going to allow my heart to be softened and tender. And it was in that time where God pressed into our lives and called us to deeper faith. He called us to greater love, to greater maturity, to greater trust. And if it wasn't for those difficult times, I wouldn't have grown the way that I've grown over the past couple of months. When I take my suffering, when we take our suffering and we, and we put it up into the purposes of God, it's when that happens that we get peace and comfort and surety of God's love for us. And there's meaning even in the midst of suffering when I put that up into the purposes of God. And that's why in verse 5, it, John reiterates, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He doesn't just love Lazarus, he loves the entire family. And he reiterates that because what's about to happen doesn't seem very loving. It doesn't really make sense. We would think Jesus would do something else. It says that in verse 2, we see, not verse 2, point 2, we see Jesus respond. So Jesus hears, and then he responds to the news about Lazarus being sick, and it says this, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. How frustrated do we get as people, as sons and daughters, when we want something to be dealt with, and only God can deal with it, and we ask him for it, and he doesn't respond when we want him to. Jesus hears that the one he loves is sick, so he stays two more days. The truth is, when my life is caught up in the purposes of God and my life is lived for his glory, I'm okay with God's timing. We're okay with God's timing. We live in such an instant world, we just want stuff dealt with immediately. And Jesus delays, and it's probably mystifying and agonizing and painful for the disciples and for Mary and for Martha. And poor old Lazarus, well, he's gone to glory at this time already. His body's dead. But the denial, or the, the delay of Jesus is not a denial from Jesus, nor is it an indication of his love and affection for them. So when Jesus is taking his time, and God is taking his time to answer stuff, it's not because he doesn't care and doesn't love us, because he sees the end game, the end result, and he sees the fruits of delaying sometimes the things that we want him to be doing. Jesus waits four days for the greater glory of God. Why does he wait four days? Well, by that time, Lazarus' body has started to putrefy. By that time, Lazarus has been dead for so long, the new King James, or the King James Bible says his body stinketh. Right? People are more and more convinced that Lazarus is dead and gone and beyond resurrection. It is an impossibility that he come back to life. There was also this weird superstitious sort of tradition that existed in ancient um, Hebrew culture where when a person died, the family and culturally they believed that the spirit of the person hung around the tomb of the person for about three days per chance that it would enter the body again or could, you know, jump back in. Um, and, and then on the fourth day, the spirit of the person apparently would look upon the countenance of the people around and realize this is hopeless and disappear. That was a superstitious belief, but it was part of that culture that they had as a Jewish culture back then. So Jesus waits four days because he, he realizes this. And it's after four days that he then says to his disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea. They say to him, but a short while ago, the Jews, they tried to stone you, and now you want to go back. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 days of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the light of this world. It is when a person walks at night and they stumble, that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, 
He went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. I love the disciples' response because they're totally confused, as would we would be then. They Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. So, like, Jesus, you heard that he was sick. You didn't go. You stayed an extra two days. Now you're telling us he's asleep, and now you want to go wake him up. Everything with you is counter, counter-cultural, counter what makes sense. Just leave him to sleep, Lord. And so Jesus says, listen, let me tell you plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's not just sleeping. And how is this for a heavy hitter? The Lord says, and I'm, and I'm glad that we stayed and we waited. And I'm glad that he's dead because you need to learn something from this. We stayed and we waited and he died so that you may believe. Now come, let's go. Verse 14 to 15 is significant because it shows us that God can take your suffering and make believers out of doubters. God can take your suffering and make believers out of doubters. That's why Jesus says, I'm glad that we waited. I'm glad that Lazarus is dead because Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead and he knows the impact it's going to have and it's going to cause people to believe what maybe they intellectually know, but it's not here in their hearts. Jesus is going to do something magnificent. But Jesus is also glad, and we miss this sometimes, He's glad because what he's going to do is going to cause such upheaval that people are going to hate him to the point of wanting to kill him. And so the raising of Lazarus from the dead sets in motion a stone that can't be stopped from rolling. And that motion is the desire to kill Jesus. And if you and I did not have a savior who people wanted to kill and hang on a tree, you and I would not be sitting here and having inherited eternal life because of the price that we paid. And so the death of Lazarus was more than just about God showing the glory of Jesus, but about setting into motion things that would essentially save us as his people. Jesus arrives after he says to his disciples, let's go. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So Lazarus has been in the tomb already for four days. There's absolutely no hope of resurrection. Many Jews had joined the woman uh, to mourn their brother. And on the fourth day, because it was, a, it was the heightened day of mourning, because now the spirit had left, superstitiously they believed, the fourth day, if you could choose a day to go and join a family to mourn, it was on the fourth day. If you could just pick one day, it was, it was the fourth day. That was the highest time of mourning. And so a bunch of people there and rich families, which Lazarus was from, would often hire paid mourners to come and join you. So to help increase and to um, exacerbate the, the sadness and, and, the, and the mourning of the person that had gone. And so Jesus arrives on the day when there's more people there that ordinarily wouldn't be there. And it was comprised of relatives and friends and family and people that probably didn't even know Lazarus and the family but were paid, like I said, to be there. And it says in verse 20, when, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Mary goes, Martha doesn't. It's highly likely that Mary was very angry and upset and hurt by Jesus not arriving. My my friends and my family, Jesus, were here on day one, two, and three. But you arrive on day four when everyone who could pick one day decides to arrive. You arrive on day four. You've healed blind men. You've healed the sick. You've, you've cleansed lepers. But my brother who's sick and we sent word to you to come and help, you didn't come. Now you arrive. 
on the day of greatest mourning, and there's nothing that can be done. It's totally hopeless. I'm angry and I'm upset. Martha's honesty is something we can relate to. We don't hear the words of Mary now, but we hear Martha. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. This is such a legitimate cry, isn't it, from our hearts when we're going through tough times. We can all relate to that. That like echoes through the corridors of humanity when people are going through difficult times. Jesus, if only you had been there, if only you loved me. Where were you? Why were you not here? Martha believed that Jesus was able to heal her brother while he was sick and still alive. But it's got to the point now where she believes no longer that anything is hopeful for her brother and this situation. But what she doesn't see, and this is so amazing, is that in the presence of Jesus, death has no more power than a blind person being healed or sickness in the presence of Jesus. He holds the keys to life and death. She doesn't realize that death is conquerable because of whose presence she's in. And that to heal a blind man is not more difficult than raising the dead for Jesus. But we believe that as we are alive and we grapple with sickness, there's more of a chance for God to do something in our lives than when we're dead. The most amazing thing, though, is all of this is a metaphor for us when it comes to our spiritual condition. What's easier for Jesus to do, to raise the dead physically or to raise the dead spiritually? Because Jesus does them both, and the most significant thing is not that you're raised physically or healed physically, but that you come to a place of spiritual life. Jesus does both. She says to him, even now I know that whatever I ask for, whatever you ask God for, he will give you. Martha was confident that Jesus could do amazing things, but I think she held a lot of doubt with regards to whether he could raise her brother. But she still puts trust in him to say, Jesus, regardless of the situation, whatever you say now, we're going to do, because you're the only one, like Peter said in chapter 6, that has the words of life. So we're going to follow you regardless. This is an amazing step of faith in the midst of hurt and pain, to say to Jesus, you, you could have, if you were here, raised him. You could have done something, but you weren't here. He's now dead. But I still believe that we need to trust in you, regardless of how I feel. She says, right now, you can, you can still ask God for stuff, and he'll give it to you. And I think there's such power in our right now prayers. And I just want to ask you this question quickly. Right now, do you have family members that you've been praying for for a long time that you're not convinced of that will come to know Jesus? He's been praying for so long. Continue to trust Jesus for the right now miracles. Because they can be spiritually as dead as Lazarus was dead physically, and Jesus can bring them back to life. Why he's waiting, we don't know, but it's for the greater glory of God. Your life can be so full of smelly stuff that people don't know about. You could be dead on the inside and decaying. And you're scared to Jesus. I want to say this to you. Jesus is unafraid of the smell, and he's able to take what's dead and make it alive. Jesus calls the things that aren't as if they are, and he gives life. It is death. In verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replies. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, 
who has come into this world. Martha understood that her brother Lazarus would rise again in the resurrection. But for her, it's, it's not any comfort to think about a resurrection that's far off in the distance, that's, that's to be experienced much later. Right now, the pain is real. It's of no comfort to think about back then when my heart is hurting now. But Jesus meant, I'm going to raise Lazarus right now. And because I'm able to raise him right now, it means I'm the one who's able to raise him again later. And he comforts her by saying this, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not an event that happens at some point in time. The resurrection is a person, and his name is Jesus. In the same way that when Pilate looked into the face of Jesus and said, what is truth? Jesus said, you're looking at him. I am truth. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not far off. He's right in front of you, and you're looking into his face. Jesus doesn't claim to have resurrection life or understand the secrets about resurrection life. He dramatically declares he is the resurrection. So what does that mean for us? It means that to know Jesus means you have resurrection life now in the spirit, not sometime in the future. We know Jesus now. We've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. To know Jesus and to have Jesus is to have resurrection life now and in the future when we are spiritually raised and have new bodies and inherit a new future. Apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection life. This is what John wants us to see. Jesus challenges Martha. He says, do you believe? Do you believe in who I am? If you do, then roll away the stone. And this is what we see next. Jesus raises the dead. Verse 32, when when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing Martha does. When Jesus saw her weeping and, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Why does Jesus weep? It's such a beautiful thing here because Jesus weeping, you get to see the heart of the man. You get to see the emotions of God. You get to see how God feels about you and feels about pain and feels about sin and how close he is to you. But why does Jesus weep when he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus again? He weeps because he is human and he's unashamed of his humanity weeps because he empathizes and sympathizes with the pain that the sin of this world brings into our lives. He weeps because he knows that Lazarus, although he's going to be raised physically now, is going to need grave clothes again. He's going to die again. And he's going to bring pain. And that he's going to bring heartache. He weeps because it was never the intention of God that we suffer and endure pain and endure sin. It was the intention of God that we live in perfect relationship with him. And the price that is now necessary to be paid to restore that and to redeem that is of the highest, highest order. Jesus weeps for that reason. We see the heart of God, church. You might not see his tears, but he sees yours. There's a scripture in the Psalms that David is speaking about what God does with his tears. And David writes, he says, you see my tears, and every single one of them is recorded in your book. There's going to come a day where you're going to speak to Jesus about the tears that you've cried. 
And he's going to say to him, not one of them hit the ground without me catching them and recording them. And I know exactly why you cried, where you thought I was or where you thought I wasn't. And he's going to wipe them away. And you are going to see the greater glory of God revealed when you see your Savior face to face. Every tear wiped away. But Jesus weeps. He's moved to the point where even his enemies say, look how much he loved this guy. And the same is true for you. When they see our Savior one day in glory, they're going to say, look how much Jesus loved them. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha to the sister of the dead man, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Talk about adding insult to injury. Jesus rocks up late. He doesn't fix and heal the sick brother. Now he's crying about something he could have done something about. And everybody's around the tomb, and you want to open up the tomb? This odor, this stench is going to come out, and it is going to be embarrassing. Brother is dead. His body is liquefying. It is going to be terrible. Why, Jesus? Some people might have thought that Jesus just wanted to go and see Lazarus one more time because he was so stricken by the death and so heartbroken he wanted to see whether it was real or not. We know Jesus was preparing to raise the dead. What does this mean for us? Again, just quickly, it means that no matter what is going on in your life, Jesus is unafraid of the smell. And it means that your heart can sometimes be like the tomb that Jesus is saying to you, roll away the stone from. It means he wants to go in and raise the dead and call what is dead to life so that you can have a transformed, resurrected relationship with Jesus, so that you can have resurrection life in him. Sometimes we need to roll away the stone of our hearts and of our lives. Sometimes we need to come to Jesus as we are, stinky and dead, wrapped in grave clothes so that he can rise us, resurrect us, so we can have life with him. Jesus says to the woman and the people around there who are afraid of rolling away the stone because of the smell, he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So they took away the stone. This is such a step of faith. You can see when you process the scripture that Jesus is leading Mary and Martha through steps of deeper and deeper trust in him. First, he gives them a promise, your brother will rise again. Then he draws attention to himself. He says, he will rise again because I am the resurrection. Then he calls them to confess their faith in him. He says, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, we believe that you're the son of God, the Messiah, the Holy One. And then he says, because of your confession, now act, roll the stone away. Roll the stone away, and Jesus prays a simple prayer in public. No pomp, no ceremony, no chanting, no wrestling in prayer. Just simple words of thanksgiving to the Father, which come out of his deep relationship and intimacy with him. Now, he said these things, and afterwards he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Interesting, he calls Lazarus' name. I was reading a commentator that made me laugh. He's like, if Jesus never called the name of Lazarus, every dead person in the area would have come out, out of their grave. Right? So Jesus, Lazarus, you come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes on, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off. This would have terrified the living daylight out of everybody around there. 
It would have left them speechless. Lazarus is probably awkwardly trying to get out because the grave clothes were wrapped tight around him. But he's blind, he can't see, and Jesus speaks in a loud voice, and it's like almost saying, Lazarus, this way, this way out. What's so amazing about that is a dead person has come back to life, and Jesus is calling him by his voice, and Lazarus knows the voice of Jesus, and he's calling him out of a dark tomb. And that's such a metaphor for what Jesus does for us. We know his voice, those of us who follow him, and as Jesus speaks, so we follow, and he calls us out of darkness into light. Lazarus comes out, and the people are so dumbstruck that they just stand there. It's amazing for me that Jesus has to say, take his clothes off, guys. Just help him here. What that means for us is that in the spirit, in the spiritual, we have a responsibility to help brothers and sisters do what God has called us to help them to do. God does what he does. He brings what's dead to life. He does the miraculous. He does what only he can do, which is why this is a sign of how great Jesus is. It's why John records it. But then God partners with us and says, I've raised him from the dead. I've done this miraculous work. Now you take the grave clothes off. What does that mean? It means that we disciple each other. We come alongside each other. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It means that we love each other as we love ourselves. It means we help each other to be growing in glory and discipling each other into a place where we love Jesus more and dealing with the stuff that needs to be chiseled off of us. Each and every single one of us is called to disciple and to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. But sometimes we can sit back and just watch a brother and sister struggle with their grave clothes. Like, we don't want to really touch that. Jesus says, I've healed you, I've restored you, people have helped you. Now the charge and the, and the, and the call is to help each other. I'm almost done. Some people that Jesus has called out of the grave spiritually, are still walking around with grave clothes on. The Lord says, when he enters your life, he takes the old and he makes it new. The old is gone and the new has come. Sometimes we want to hold on to those grave clothes so desperately that we stay bound and hindered and strapped up. The Lord's saying, give that over to me today. Let's, let's take that off. And we need to be praying for one another. And we need to be using our gifts to sharpen one another, to help us to unwrap the grave clothes and to walk in the freedom that God has set you free to walk in. Jesus is able to do that for you. Loose yourself and let yourself go, but brothers and sisters need to come around and help to do that. After all of this had happened, it says in verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Jesus is glorified, point five. This was the whole reason Jesus did what he did and waited as long as he did. It was to bring glory to his name, and so people put their faith in him. This will happen with us as we put our life up into the purposes of God. This is the whole point. It's exactly what John wants to have happen as we read this. It's what happened then, so that through our lives, many come to know and believe in Jesus. prayer for this morning and the challenge this morning is to, na- is to analyze your life and go, God, where am I still wearing grave clothes? What do I need to hold all over? What do I need to hand over to you? And what in my life that have I experienced that has caused me to believe that you don't love me? Lord, let me bring that to you and restore my understanding of your love despite all of that and use me, God, continuously for your glory. And let's pray together.
Father, this morning we've just seen through your word one of the amazing things that you did for the glory of your name so that people would believe in knowing you, know you and believe in you. Father, I thank you for brothers and sisters in this room who you love and who you know intimately and how you use us, God, in our lives and the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in for your glory. And church, I want to invite you this morning as, as we go into time of worship and as we end off, if there's prayer that you need, if there are metaphorical grave clothes that you're still wearing, we want to pray that the Lord release you from that and that we can in some way come around you and help to take it off. Pray that you'd be able to come to the Lord and confess your heartache and your pain and patch of disappointment and get real with God and be prayed for to receive a spirit of peace and joy and an understanding of the love of God. Maybe you just need encouragement to carry on pressing in for that impossible thing you're asking God for. Or maybe this morning you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time. We want to pray for that. So we're going to make ourselves available up front. The elders will be up front and I'll stay up front for a while. But Holy Spirit, if that's what you're doing in the hearts of people this morning, cause them to respond for the glory of your name. And as we end off with words this morning, Jesus, cause us to see you, to know you, and to go into the week ahead, celebrating the resurrection life we have in you and how you use all things for the glory of your name. There's no higher calling, Jesus.